Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Hi, listeners. Today, I am really, really thrilled and excited to introduce Dr. Daniel Buckman. He is a bioethicist in independent science in the Campbell Family Mental Health Research Institute at CAMH, which is, I believe, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. That's the full title in Toronto. He is also an assistant professor in the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. His program of research looks at ethical issues in clinical practice and public health, specifically focusing on mental health, substance use, and chronic pain. And it also considers how stigma, identity, more responsibility, and compassion are linked with these topics. So thank you so much and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm very honored to be here. Usually I start, if I have ever met somebody, with an origin story. And I believe our origin story, we were both students. I think yes. I was a PhD student and you were a master's student and we were maybe I was a research assistant in a class, probably like, I'm thinking, was it 2008 or 2009, like a long time ago? I think it was about 2007 or maybe- Even longer. Even longer, 2007 or 2008, around there, I was a MSW social work student at the University of Toronto. And I believe the class that I took with you as my instructor was research design. I don't oh. remember the exact name of the class, but it was something, something and like I, that. Anyway, I do remember it. How ironic that I'm teaching that very same class this semester. Oh, and I told them about you, um, about, because I played this video on epistemic injustice. And I said, and I'm so excited I'm doing this podcast with this expert. So that's oh. kind of a nice full circle. And then I, I found out more about your work on Twitter. Thanks, Twitter. Yeah, so sure. we're going to have like a link to your Twitter so people can can follow you. So I want to know, imagine that we all have vaccines for COVID-19 <laughs> and we can hang out in elevators again. Yes. And someone says, hey, what kind of things do you work on? How do you describe your elevator pitch? So it's similar to what is in the bio. So I'm a bioethicist and I'm interested in ethical issues related to mental health, substance use, and chronic pain, both, well, individually as buckets, but also areas where they intersect, which are many. And I'm also interested in that intersection between clinical practice and public health and that ethical space where the two meet. And I think many they, they meet in many important ways. So I'm not just focusing on the micro or the meso or the macro, but all of them at those various intersections. And my research over the last few years in this area has focused on um, ethical issues related to the overdose crisis, for example, or has focused on ethical issues related to chronic pain or chronic non-cancer pain. 
specifically in areas where pain and the overdose crisis have intersected as well. And um, stigma is something that I've focused a lot on in my program of research, probably I would say, at least since I was an MSW student and um, and starting to explore these areas, um, both in terms of my you know growing work as a social worker, but also as I was starting to pay more attention, I think, to some of the ethical dimensions of stigma. And so people study stigma from you know many different vantage points with different lenses. And um, I'm inspired by many of them from anthropology, from sociology, social psychology, and so forth. I at least attempt to, in my, some of my own work as a bioethicist, is to look at some of the moral dimensions of stigma. And I'm very inspired by a lot of the, let's say, medical anthropology work that has looked at sort of moral dimensions of stigma. And specifically understanding stigma as an issue of social justice. Um, so looking not only at stigma as a potential sort of independent social determinants of health, so sorry, social determinant of health, but also looking at the ways in which stigma dehumanizes not just individuals, but populations and communities. Um, the way in which stigma can factor into issues around access, but looking at access, uh, let's say access to services or access to care, um, but also just access to particular resources that we might consider valuable in society. So not necessarily material resources, like let's say mental health care or substance use care or chronic pain care, which are, is incredibly important, but also how that impacts access to certain forms of knowledge and power. I'm going to go back to, to this. <laughs> sure, sure. You're, I want to rewind though, okay? You, okay? okay, you've laid out what we're going to talk about, listeners. It's going to be amazing. And I want you to be telling us stories of, you know, I'm going to ask you some specific stories to make it come alive for listeners. But I love that you you kind of laid all these things out. But I want to rewind for the listeners who might be from different places, different walks of life in the world. Um, MSW is a master of social work. But I want to, okay, I want to show up at your house and I might interact with your six-year-old. Imagine that, you know, all all the COVID precautions are being taken. I'm going to show up right now with my time machine. And my time machine is very COVID-proofed. Um, and I'm going to say, tell me a story. Bring me back to the time and place where something happened. What happened? Or where where would you take me when you decided to think, I want to be a bioethicist? Because I don't think that's often what sometimes social workers end up doing that. Was being a bioethicist something that maybe a seed was planted a long time ago? Or was it in social work? I want to know more about that genesis of you thinking about stigma and, and all of these topics. What happened? Where would you go? Bring me in this time machine somewhere. Tell me where we are. So my interest in bioethics is longstanding. And I th think it probably started when I was a little kid. You know, according to family members, I was, I, I had, I had a very strong let's call it a moral compass or an internal moral compass from an early age. I had a, an intuitive sense of right and wrong. You know, if I saw, you know, other kids breaking the rules on the playground, I, I felt that very strongly. You know, I said, these are rules, right? And these rules should be followed. You know, later on in my life, I would be very adamant about certain rules ought to be broken. Um, <laughs> but, but And certain rules may not be ethical or, or right, but that's sort of a side thing. But I was very attuned to that and or attuned to other kids, uh, how they treated other kids uh, through bullying, 
or even just out of respect and, and kindness. So I, I was very attuned from a very early age to the moral dimensions of our life. You know, we are interconnected. We are relational beings. Um, you know, this is this is true of, the hu- of human existence. And so from an early age, that I was very attuned to that. You know, as I as I grew up, I so can I ask you where are you when you're a child? Where where am I going in this time machine? Oh, we're going back to like probably age two or three. So where where in the world? Oh, uh, so I, I grew up in Toronto. Okay, Toronto, okay. Canada. Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so they keep going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, and so this is like you know in in elementary school and sort of being very attuned to this, and then as I got maybe into under my undergraduate studies at at McGill University in Montreal. I was studying psychology and a program called Social Studies of Medicine. And Social Studies of Medicine looks at health and healthcare or institutions of of medicine and institutions of healthcare from historical perspectives, from sociological perspectives, anthropological perspectives, um, philosophical perspectives. And I took a course in, in bioethics. And so bioethics is typically thought of as ethical issues as applied to health and healthcare. Sometimes you might think of it here it as biomedical ethics, or you might have heard medical ethics. Bio, the prefix, comes from, it means life, and so typically is understood as sort of the ethics, not ethics of life per se, but ethics in health and healthcare. And, and how would you describe ethics? How would I describe ethics? Yeah, so about so. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I should have probably should have started there and then moved in anyway. So ethics is a branch of moral philosophy. It's a branch of applied of what's called applied ethics. So applied ethics is essentially ethics of the everyday life, of everyday life. So ethics, you know, what we do, how we act, how we ought to act, how we ought to be with one another, and bioethics takes that applied ethics piece and applies it right into the into the health and healthcare setting. Amazing. So what's good and bad and right and wrong and just and unjust about, you know, sort of any ethical, any issue in in healthcare. And we're talking not just about the clinical issues or the, you know, the micro level interpersonal interactions or intrapersonal interactions, but how decisions are made in an institution, how decisions are made at the policy level, right? These are all what's called normative or ethical dimensions. So for example, I just came off calls literally half an hour ago where we're just where we're discussing how we ought to equitably allocate vaccines for COVID-19. That is fundamentally an ethical question because we have a situation where the demand for COVID-19 vaccines far exceeds the supply. We have populations who need to get access to the vaccine. So how do we decide who goes first? How do we decide what order? What's fair? And what by what criteria? And more importantly, is our criteria fair? So we have two different processes here within bioethics. So we have our substantive or applied criteria, which is, let's say, you know, are we doing it by, for instance, like age, um, other comorbidities, other factors that might make someone more, let's say, uh, more susceptible to developing COVID-19 or uh, experiencing harms from COVID-19. But then you have sort of procedural ethics or what's called sometimes called procedural justice in these situations is, all right, so who are the decision makers around the table that are making this decision? Whose voices are being heard and who has input into this process? And 
so that's more of like on a fairness procedural piece that also goes into these kinds of decisions. So that's just a very concrete example of something I do every day. Well, not vaccine allocation every day, but something what's called organizational ethics, which is very sort of applied approach of ethics. So anyhow, I was in undergrad and sort of became enamored with this. And I was like, man, like this is such a cool thing. You know, how do I, how do I do this? Like, how do I become involved in this? And one uh, year during my undergrad, I had heard of uh, this program. So I was in Montreal and I heard of this program in Toronto um, associated with the Joint Center for Bioethics at the University of Toronto, which still exists and which I'm a member of now. And they had which this what they had an undergraduate summer student program. And they don't have it anymore, unfortunately, but at the time they had it. And I was like, oh, what's this? And I was actually faced with a very tough ethical decision or dilemma myself, because during that time I was uh, very involved in music as a musician and I was part of a, of a touring rock band and we would- What, what do you play? Like, what, what uh, is your... I'm a percussionist. Oh, okay, cool. And so we would, you know, in, in breaks of school, we would go on tour. And uh, so this was like, oh my gosh, if I do this really cool bioethics job during the summer, I won't be able to go on tour with my band or maybe I can do it both, I don't know. Um, so it was, it was a dilemma. That was another sort of personal dilemma for Maybe. Anyway, I want to hear about how you afterwards, I want to hear how you made that decision. Oh, gosh, it wasn't very systematic. It was just like, I don't know. Um, no I imagine problem. the decision was to leave the band and come to Toronto. Uh, yeah. So at that time, which I had done a couple times throughout the course of the next few years. But yeah, you know, just to make certain. Anyway, so I um, I had heard about this this summer student job where you would be paired with a bioethicist who works in a hospital. And you would spend, um, so you would, you would shadow them, do some projects, and uh, it was a paid summer position, and you would learn about what they do. And so I had the very good fortune of, uh, first of all, being accepted into the program, and then being paired with um, the bioethicists at, uh, at the time at Baycrest mm. Hospital in Toronto, um, who were pretty much my first mentors in bioethics. Um, so this is Dr. Marsha Sokolowski and Dr. Michael Gordon, who are still, you know, mentors of mine to this day. Um, and I sort of was, I spent a lot of time with Marsha and just learning about what she does. And I was just completely enamored. I was like, this is, this is the cool thing. How do I, how do I do this? Um, Marsha was a psychologist who was finishing a PhD in philosophy. And as I learned, there's many different roads into bioethics. Um, many people come from medicine. Many people come from philosophy or law. It's very interdisciplinary. And, but there were also, at the time at least, a lot of these, what's called clinical ethicists. So these are, are people who are, are in hospitals or other healthcare institutions whose position is to be a ethicist in the institution who were social workers. Um, they may have had a career like 10, 20 years, 25 years in social work, and then they had made a career change and maybe they got a, another graduate degree in bioethics and then became, um, they were hired as a bioethicist in their institution. However, at the time, uh, I was noticing that there were more and more bioethics programs coming up in graduate school. Um, there were sort of different ways to go about it. And I was thinking, okay, well, maybe there's different ways that I you know, might, be able to, might be able to do this. Um, and social work was always on my radar um, as something I was interested in. Um, and I decided to apply uh, to, for a master's of social work at U of T and see what happens. Um, at the time, really, I was, I have to honestly say, I was really more focused on my music and not really thinking about all these other things. Okay, do you still play music or is, are you still a percussionist? 
I, I, well, uh, sort of. Um, I was more about like playing with my kids now and, you know, banging on pots and pans and the few <laughs> drums I have around the house. And unfortunately, I don't play as much as I used to. But um, from, from time to time, I, I, I try to play. But at the time, anyway, I was like, really, like, I was like, I'm going to be a rock star. Like, that's all I want to do with my life. Like, I don't really care. I had, like, the idea of, like, planning in the future just did not register for me. Anyway, so I had this wonderful experience during one, actually two summers at Baycrest in, in a very similar position, learning a ton from the ethicists there and the patients and the families. And I got actually really, in, at Baycrest, I got really interested in ethical issues surrounding memory and trauma. So Baycrest, uh, I'm not sure about right now, but probably still, but at least at the time I was there, had, I think, the highest percentage of patients or residents in some of the long-term care, co- care homes who were survivors, Holocaust survivors. And uh, Baycrest many, is a long, so Baycrest long-term is, care facility for older folks. Is that right? So Baycrest is a geriatric ho- is a hospital, a geriatric hospital, but also has long-term care sort of wings, I guess, or parts of the broader institution. So I even remember like going on the on the inpatient units um, and you know hearing people having horrible horrible flashbacks of their times in the concentration camps or other various traumatic experiences and and they may have been at sort of mild or moderate or even advanced levels of dementia and you know experiencing these horrible traumatic experiences in real time and it was incredibly distressing, obviously, for the person who's going through it, for their family members, for the staff. And for, for me, sort of witnessing um, this as well. And at around at that time, there was um, an interesting study that came out where researchers were using propranolol, which is a beta blocker, to uh, administer to, to, I believe, it to rats who they would condition them to a sort of conditioned place preference study. So some of the rats would go into one area of the cage and they may shock their paws or do something you know nasty to the rats. And then they would condition them and they would pair it with a light. And so when the light came off, the rats may freeze or, or, or do something because they're, they're expecting to be shocked. And they found that when they gave the rats propranolol, essentially the traumatic memory or at least the emotional response to the trauma was blunted and was eliminated almost entirely. And the rats would go back to that same space. And when they put on the light, the rats would almost essentially like not even really react. And so I had this thought, it's like, oh my goodness, you know, if this was possible in human beings, should we do this? You know, is it ethical to give people who are experiencing horrible trauma for Panelol to blunt the emotional impact of their memory? And, you know, is that something we ought to do? You know, we have a goal to relieve suffering, to promote patients' well people people's well-being but at the same time trauma can be a source of growth for people Mm. and um, like post-traumatic growth or you know is is this a trauma-informed thing to do you know how do we do that in people who can't consent Um, should we do that so a lot of these sort of questions which started to solidify my interest in bioethics being like this is a real this is a real issue like this is you know a lot of people could be helped by this but a lot of people could be harmed and maybe this is not something we should be doing or maybe it is something that we should be doing so I started to wrestle with so confusing right so confused I was like what do I do Um, I'm like I don't even know and then uh, and anyway so so a few years later, I ended up doing my MSW and, and you know, I had my own uh, mental health experiences um, sort of throughout the, pretty much the course of my life and also through graduate school and uh, experiences of family and friends as well and, and um, what they were struggling with. And I, and I started to notice 
more and more just how people were being treated in the system. Actually, well, I'm hesitant to even call it a system because a system it presumes that something is functioning, and and we all know that you know health system. We don't really much have much of a health system here in <laughs> Ontario, or is even a mental health system. It's a sort of separate, independent parts. But so I, during my MSW and and taking courses and and my practicums and other sort of lived experiences that I was having and and that of my friends and family, I was you know starting to pay also more attention to how these issues came up in a mental health context. And I had done some work in first episode psychosis and home visits um, and just really, you know, opening my eyes to many of the structural inequalities that exist in our system. Um, You know, how I personally, how I've been situated and benefited from even from the inequalities and have been privileged in a certain way in terms of my own access to services, but also, you know, how, um, you know, I maybe have a, of a particular group or intersection of groups that would benefit from, from my access to services and also my outcomes and just how people, um, you know, at least in these contexts were, you know, really being systematically disadvantaged or they had multiple intersecting factors of systematic disadvantage. Could you give like an example? Well, these may be due to racialized status or or group um, gender, language. For example, if they might have been a, uh, an immigrant to Canada, and not and English is not a, a language that they speak primarily or at all. So uh, those folks. And I used to work with people with schizophrenia in Toronto as well. So you're saying those folks may have more barriers to getting mental health services when experiencing psychosis and may have worse outcomes. Yes, absolutely. And the, and the people that I was seeing, at least initially, were people who had access to these services, right? And there's lots of people, as we know, who do not or have not been able to access these services, right? And even when they do access these services, you know, what we do know from the literature, for sure, is that they receive worse quality care when they do owing to various forms of bias and prejudice and racism and um, discrimination in many possible ways, Um, sexism, racism, ableism, you know, so on and so forth. So this, so this, so I started to having sort of being very open to these or being more aware of, of sort of many of these lived realities for many people. And uh, as I was doing my MSW, I, um, you know, started to continue to develop my interest in substance use and addiction. And I ended up doing an MSW thesis on actually on, on the sort of the intersection of social work um, and brain imaging, if you will. Um, just but more it was more a sort of a thesis of of just understanding different um, ways in which um, something or a construct that we understand as addiction is represented using in different ways, using different tools. And so I was particularly interested in how brain imaging technologies were representing addiction, were hmm. being used at the time to represent this is something called addiction. And, and you know, despite sort of efforts within MSW programs or training or, you know, medicine or psychology or what have you of focusing on what's called the biopsychosocial model, which, which means that let's say mental health or, sub, or addiction is a intersection of biological factors, social factors, psychological factors, sometimes spiritual factors. There really, there was, it wasn't each biopsychosocial wasn't positioned, you know, 
in like weighted equally. There was way more. It was disproportionate emphasis on the buyer. You want, you want to know something funny is in, I focused on substance use and mental health in my master's, which is in the U.S., and I totally remember these images they showed us of people's brains. This is somebody who is addicted to this substance, and you can see this pathway in their brain that can only be you know met when they use a specific substance. So for the listeners who yep. are maybe anywhere listening to this and might not know, what is they might say, what's the big deal? What, what's the problem in showing a picture of someone's brain and so we can understand addiction? What is, what's wrong with that? So that's a big question. And I think we can think of it in different ways. So there's been, so I'll start with the idea that addiction in and of itself, as we understand from many years of research and, and tons of lived experience of people who use drugs is that Addiction is not just an issue of biology. Biology is is one potential contributor for sure. And I would never say that there's no genetic contributions and there's no, you know, neurobiological changes or neurophysiological changes that happen with substance use or certain things that might predispose someone to might have more issues in using drugs than others in different ways. But that's not the whole story. There's, I mean, again, of a huge volume of research looking at things around the social terms of health and substance use problems, how substance use issues are concentrated, again, in structurally disadvantaged communities, indigenous populations, for example, right? This is not a matter of biology. This is a matter of structural determinants of health. It's also a matter of policy and of laws. So laws and drug laws, for example, uh, of a very, very, very long history, as it's rooted in racism. Um, you can look back in Canada, the 1908 Opium Act was in, inherently a racist drug law that still informs our, our current Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, which we have right now. You know, this leads to, you know, increased incarceration for certain communities. This incarceration rates, disproportionate incarceration rates, or benefits for certain, let's say, white communities are, have benefited from this. You have a, sort of all these other sort of intersecting factors around what might count as addiction or substance use that is cannot be explained by by a picture by a picture of the brain by a picture of the brain (laughs) i mean so that's i mean that's a very high level very quick like sort of simple explanation in some ways of you know why biology isn't of the story but then the interesting thing about a picture of the brain is that if it's it's immense persuasive power and this is getting into some really fascinating work that's been done in medical anthropology or what's sometimes called neuroanthropology. One of my favorite books in this area is by an anthropologist named Joseph Dumit. And he wrote a series of papers, but also this, this beautiful book called Picturing Personhood. Mm. And in Picturing Personhood, he did an ethnography of how depression, for example, is represented not just in popular culture, but in through like brain imaging labs using technology like functional magnetic resonance imaging or PET scans, positron emission tomography. And how a lot of these images, and there's been some wonderful work as well by like sociologists like Kelly Joyce, Simon Cohn, and many, many others who've taken this up and have said, look, how are images of, of the brain positioned in popular culture? Right. Um, so like you said, you know, you have an image of this is your brain 
on drugs, <laughs> you know, the, well, not literally from the old ad, but the, it, yeah, it, I remember those ads, that, like with the, with the eggs, right? You know, yes. this is your brain on, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs. But it comes from that. It's like, this is like, I, I have this picture that I show sometimes when I teach that I have of, um, a poster I, I saw in the Boston subway where it was, it was two brain fmri brains that are juxtaposed against each other and they had little colors in one of them and there wasn't as many colors in the other and this is exactly what dumit says and so it, the, the poster says something like you know drinking or drugs which will it be for your kids right so it was like sort of part of the just say no campaigns it's a fear tactic scaremongering which we know has zero evidence that it works and ethically it's quite suspicious as well but anyhow it asks the reader who is who cannot interpret brain images um, because they're not a, a <laughs> they don't have that expertise to say so which brain is the good one right which brain do I build? So Duman asks, you know, which which brain is normal, which is abnormal? Mm. So this binary is happening here, first and foremost. Second of all, it says, which brain do I belong? And am I normal? And I think, you know, relating to stigma, this is this reproduces and I think entrenches certain forms of stigmatized identities. And this, some of this inspiration around brain imaging and um, Dumit's work and Kelly Joyce and others you know, inspired me to think about these ideas around addiction as be, as being classified as a brain disease. So again, to the point of what's wrong with just showing a picture of a brain and saying this is addiction. So as we, you know, as many listeners of, of the podcast know, as, as you know, we know very well, substance use and substance disorders and people who use drugs are highly stigmatized in many ways. I want you to, to break it down for a listener sure. who might not know what that looks like. So Thinking about your work around, you, you know, you said you do work around substance use and mental health and pain. Can you walk us through like a, a daily life from someone from the wake up to the go to sleep and what stigma might look like at the intersection of some of the, the identities that you see? Just, I feel like that the stories are a way for people to make alive all the this brilliant theory, what does this look like? What does it matter that we show a picture of someone's brain? How does that impact how we see them or we treat them? Sure. Okay. So, I mean, I'm going to give something very generic. Obviously, everyone has stories, um, <laughs> you know. So for me, and I, I, may, I may maybe make this point a little bit later on, but for me, the, the, the link between brain and someone's experience is very much linked to identity and how people see themselves and how we see others. And especially in the broader cultural context that we live in, where the brain is, you know, has replaced the heart as our soul. Oh, that's, that's powerful. <laughs> it, you know, it's. But I'll give a concrete sexual, example. But, but I think what you just said is really, we give this huge weight in say Western, maybe Eurocentric or white culture, and at least in Canada, to the brain as being the most important, not the heart, not the soul, you know? That's so interesting that you, you brought that up. I, I have not had a philosopher on this show before, so this is exciting. The, I mean, the brain, I think, is the modern is the modern soul, and there's been a lot of really interesting work that has been has looked at this. Um, you know, actually, and in terms of, you know, the brain and, and erasing culture, and I mean, this would be some of the things that I, I would mention about why it may be potentially problematic to show a picture of the brain. 
But there, there's a. But I'll just quickly before I get to a very concrete example, I refer to Dr. Helena Hansen, who's I believe at NYU, New York, New York University, or maybe she's at University of California, Los Angeles right now. I'm not entirely sure. Anyway, she has this. She's written some brilliant papers. She's a psychiatrist and medical anthropologist who's written some brilliant papers on um, critical race theory and the overdose crisis, which I highly recommend. But she has this also this brilliant paper on this exact idea of, of how the brain disease model of addiction, you know, essentially erases various intersecting categories of identity and presumes this whiteness of, of, of addiction. And she relates this, she links it back very, very closely to um, the overdose crisis, um, which I won't go into because I don't want to butcher her arguments, but I just recourage everyone to read the paper because I think it's, it's wonderful. Well, maybe um, we'll invite her on oh, yeah. and have a little ethic series. <laughs> So, I mean, so something very concretely for someone with substance use disorder, so, uh, or someone, someone who uses drugs. Now, I don't, again, I'm not in telling sort of a, a, a fictional story here. I, I am in no way um, representing what these, what many folks struggle with or of every course. day or are doing anything like that. But I can, what I can imagine from stories that friends and colleagues and people that I work with have told me the way I understand it is that. You know, there's a lot of different aspects of stigma going on. So people may wake up one morning and say, say they use um, a substance, I don't know, such as alcohol, right? It's, so I'll, I'll mm-hmm. use alcohol because it's a, it's a legal substance. Mm-hmm. It's one that we see advertisements for and promoted for all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, the, and there's sort of, but it's also a substance that people may or may not have various issues consuming with. So during their day-to-day life. So someone may wake up and experience on one level some self-stigma. Mm-hmm. So self-stigma, so, so my, the, the definition of stigma that I tend to, tend to think about is, is, is my colleague Daniel Goldberg talks a lot about stigma as difference plus deviance. Mm-hmm. So you have uh, a powerful in-group identifying a less powerful out-group as different based on a demographic characteristic and then assigning a normative label of deviance. So they're different, they're abnormal, there's something wrong with them based on that specific characteristic. And so someone who wakes up in the morning might say, hey, you know what? I am worthless. I am a bad person because I consume alcohol. Or I'm a bad person because I consume alcohol at the rate that I do. I know it's not good for me. I know I should stop, but I just can't. Or maybe I don't want to, Mm. but people think I should do. And so you, they may, or they may judge themselves as being a bad person. And this again Mm. goes back historically to how addiction has been understood and defined as a moral weakness, as a weakness of will. And this, these oppressive attitudes in many ways is it can be in, are internalized by people who use drugs. And so someone, you know, or, or let's say someone living with mental illness or even someone living with chronic pain on a day-to-day basis, they're saying, I sh-, you know, I am lazy. I should be able to get out of bed. I should be able to go shopping and not complain about it. So all these tropes or stereotypes about the person with pain, you know, may come to the forefront. So that in terms of their self-stigma. They may experience other forms of, of stigma and, and discrimination at the level of, um, let's say, even employment. So they're going to their job and, and maybe, you know, they don't feel that they can actually safely disclose that they consume substances for fear of being ostracized by colleagues, of being fired from their job. 
you know, stigma cuts across the social gradient, but it really, I think, dis- it disproportionately impacts people who are stigmatized in multiple domains. So as we think of or linking it very much with um, various forms of structural disadvantage. So the idea that you're stigmatized in one domain of your life, you're likely to be stigmatized in multiple other domains of your life, and this has an impact on your health. So for example, if you are someone who is uh, part of a racialized population and may also have other intersecting uh, identities that are highly stigmatized and discriminated against in our society, you may also likely to be someone who works in precarious employment. So the potential harms, let's say, of disclosing your substance use mm. um, could be even, the burden could be even greater on multiple levels, okay? Or, or being able to safely discuss that without fear of retribution or some sort of penalty, which not only could have an impact on your life individually, but the life of your family and community as well. Perhaps, you know, you've really wanted to access services for your mental health or for your substance use, but you go to a major mental health institution in the city that you live in and you're like, you could say, you know, I've been consuming, let's say, very high levels of, let's say, cocaine for a very long time. It has caused a lot of damage to my interpersonal relationships, um, my ability to work. Um, I'm seeking help, but there's really no, he's like, okay, well, you can wait for a therapist for a year mm. to see someone. Or, you know, you could see someone in the private system, but it's going to cost you $250 an hour. Mm. And, you know, if you have precarious employment and no health insurance, I mean, even if you are employed and your employer offers some sort of private insurance, many for mental health don't cover $250 an hour to see a therapist. Yeah. And, and so, you know, that's the the stigma against, let's say, mental health and substance use that's literally baked in to our policies and programs and practices, which can be very detrimental for someone. That's such a great example. And I know our time is approaching the end. And I have one, actually, I have one question before the wildcard questions for you. I loved, I loved how you brought that example of how it can impact someone's self-worth, their relationships, also their relationship with their work, and then maybe facing barriers to accessing healthcare. We had Matthew Bond of the Canadian Association for People Who Use Drugs on a previous podcast who gave some really powerful and disturbing examples of how sometimes people who are using methadone are not even offered primary health care because of the right. stigma towards them. But the last time we had, we had a conversation, which was, I think, a few months ago now, you brought up this concept I really want the listeners to think about because I, on epistemic injustice, and you inspired me to go and I found this attic philosophy video on what is epistemic justice injustice, and I've been showing it to my classes and they really love it. And I just wonder if in the last, like, you know, few minutes before, before the wild cards. Um, what is epistemic justice? What does it have to do with stigma? And what does it have to do with us? Like in a, in, you know, in a few minutes, like what do you think about this? Because I hadn't really ever heard of that term before our conversation. So it has everything to do with stigma and it has everything to do with us. And us, I mean, collectively, including us. So epistemic injustice happens when somebody is wronged or harmed in their capacity as a 
knower or a giver of knowledge. And so I'll explain a little bit what that means. Um, the, the aspect that I focus a lot in my work is around a concept called testimonial injustice. And testimonial injustice is, is relevant to stigma sort of in the following ways. So testimonial injustice, at least the way that I look at it, can be both what some people have called agential testimonial injustice. So this is when a prejudice or a bias on, on a hearer um, deflates the credibility or undermines the credibility of a speaker. So a typical example that I look at in the context, let's say, of chronic pain is when a healthcare professional devalues or discredits the testimony of the person about their reports of pain or their experiences related to pain. So they give them less credibility than they deserve about their experiences. And that could happen uh, more for a woman, right? And more for yeah. um, like so, uh, Serena Williams, who would be a dream podcast guest. Serena is <laughs> one of my personal heroes. I'm a little, yeah, I would say obsessed with her, but the fact that they didn't believe her own pain in childbirth and, you know, she almost died in childbirth, you know, like many African-American women because they're not believed as annoying about their own body. Is that like an example? It's a great example. So it's, it's, I mean, Serena Williams, I mean, I mean, if you had Serena Williams on this podcast, that, that's, that would I would have incredible. made it in life. That's like, <laughs> that would make, I've been asking for Dan Levy, you know, I, I don't know, somebody <laughs> connect me, you know, Dan, Dan Levy, Serena, they're like, you know, I'm not saying you're not my dream guest. Oh, I'm just no, saying, no, I Serena, I have been worshiping for a long time. Well, yeah, she's, she's, she's incredible. One of the greatest athletes ever. And uh, yes, exactly. So she may not have been given as much credibility as she deserved because of intersecting identities of, of, of being black and a black woman. And, you know, there again, there's tons of evidence to, to support the fact that black women, particularly in the U.S., have worse outcomes in childbirth. And this is largely due to, I would say, a matter of, um, I mean, this is, this is major, this is racism, but also a part of it is not taken as seriously because of, of a testimonial injustice. There's, there's also a kind of testimonial injustice that I'm really interested in, in the context of pain and addiction as well, which is what some people call structural testimonial injustice. So that definitely relates to the first one that we talked about in terms of the structures around like racism and sexism and so forth. But when certain dis in structural testimonial injustice and when, when certain discourses are privileged over other ways of knowing. So for example, pain, I think is a really good example of this. So chronic pain is by definition a subjective condition. There is no blood test that we can do to de determine what someone's level of pain they're in. We have devised these quantifiable scales, like you know, rate your pain on one to ten. But you know, I may have a hangnail and rate my pain as a nine out of ten, whereas you may you know have a broken leg and say, oh, it's about a three. And that may be true for both of us. But there's no, but these are very subjective scales. And another issue with chronic pain is there's often not an, a, an objective physical sign. And there's a, at least there's not an objective, like, you know, let's say with back pain and herniated discs or bulge discs or things like that. There's no correlation between the degree of disc bulging, for example, and the pain that someone experiences. And these are also mediated by factors related to gender um, and racial category, uh, ethnicity, and so forth. So people who, who bear various stigmatized identities and often multiple stigmatized identities. So like the, the example um, that you gave Serena Williams, despite, you know, this person happens to be individually like one of the greatest athletes to ever live, is still given less credibility than they deserve.
So someone who's othered in that way from, from a stigma perspective um, is already given less power. And in the context of the sort of the structural testimonial justice, which means which ways, ways of knowing are privileged over others, and let's say in a clinical interaction, there's a lot of really interesting research that has been trying to use brain imaging, again, to both predict uh, and diagnose or find what's called biomarkers, so these biological markers in the brain of chronic pain. And to say like, okay, here I can look in this picture and say, here's the, here's your pain. Mm. Or I can quantify and objectify your subjective experience and say, no, no, this is what you're experiencing. And so the concern that I have, at least ethically from this perspective of testimonial injustice, is that the certain ways of knowing, like let's say through a brain image, may be put in higher on an epistemic hierarchy than someone's own experience about their pain. Totally. Like, I, like so, with chronic f- fatigue syndrome, I watched exactly. this amazing TED TED Talks with this woman who was just disbelieved like because like the doctors couldn't figure out what it was forever. And she was told, you know, is, you're imagining this, you're making this up because they couldn't see it in any tests. Is that kind of what you're... Well, it, exactly, right? You know, medically unexplained symptoms people not taken seriously and so because this is a this is a cultural problem this is you know we live in or in a in a culture in a biomedical culture that relies on objective and materialistic indicators of disease processes and chronic pain frustrates that and so you know and also if you look at the history of pain and subjectivity and stigma i mean we've had these very long histories you had mentioned this earlier women in particular you know have been are, are even to this day are constantly dismissed as you know it's all quoted it's all in your head right? Which means that it's, it's not real. It's not happening, right? Or gaslighted in that way or undermined. And that leads to very much poor, poor quality of care or people not wanting to disclose certain things or feeling safe enough to disclose things in certain settings. You know, we know that there's, again, a long history, like racist history of pain medicine where black bodies were devalued or, and, and seen as, you know, as having, and this goes back to, I mean, there's many instances, but some famous examples of the obstetrician, J. Marion Sims, who used, who, who did experiments on, on black slaves, uh, Anarka, Betsy, and, um, oh, I'm blank on the third name, um, on slaves, on these on women without anesthesia. I mean, horrible, horrible things, but it, because these identities were seen as to be not only less human, but actually in some cases superhuman, of seen of having sort of thicker nerves. So this racist science that persisted at that time. I mean, this all together sort of contributes to how a hearer, let's say, or a clinician, you know, perceives the testimony of of the other about their experiences and sort and what ways of knowing are privileged. And so, I worry about that with some of these advanced technologies in terms of not only the ethical harms. I mean, the very real practical harms that could come to people, but also what's what some philosophers are calling epistemic harms um, in terms of how they are you know, seen as credible as givers of knowledge. You're so amazing. I am so inspired <laughs> to go dig up some of these books and find out more and maybe do like an ethics series for this podcast. So I only have a couple more minutes with you. Yeah, yeah. And, and I have one, okay, what's one thing, one thing that the listener can do about this to start being part of a solution but what's one thing believe people that's that's really it right it's really like believe believe people trust people or or, or believe or if not even just believe people like listen to people Mm -hmm. when they tell you they're in pain 
I mean, I think there's an, like, so things that I've written about in terms of epistemic injustice is, is that some, like, you know, the, let's say in the clinical context, um, clinicians also have to evaluate the information they're receiving. So they need to be epistemically humble in the sense they have to know the limits of their knowledge and expertise and have to find a ways to find this like epistemic equilibrium with what the person in front of them is telling them. Yeah, that's so simple, right? Like well, we can all just believe people when they tell us about their pain or their... Yeah, believe like believe people, like just, yeah. just believe people. <laughs> okay. Uh, but, but also, but listen, believe and listen and yeah. give, you know, I think... People are living with whatever they're living with every day, and you you know they have this in, this this like intersection of time or this this slice of time in which let's say in a clinical context in which they're seeing somebody, and you know they're making decisions in their head of what they're going to disclose if they feel safe to disclose or how they might be harmed, and so another area would intersects with epistemic injustice and stigma that I've looked on is, is trust, and so you know, trust is the foundation of human relationships, but clinicians, healthcare professionals in these positions of power have an obligation to demonstrate trustworthiness to their patients and the, and the clients and people that they work with. And so that the client or the person can place trust wisely in them so that they will help them and do what they say they're going to do and not harm them. Mm. And, and so it's part of all of this. It's like, yeah, believe people listen to them um you know it's it, it, it doesn't mean that you have to do everything that someone asks you to do often what i see in my work as a clinical ethicist is people conflate sort of autonomy with you know the customer is always right kind of thing you know just because someone asks for something or wants something doesn't mean they ought to get it there may be very good reasons why you know you shouldn't fulfill it, but at least listen to them validate acknowledge the concern and and work with them and believe them when they when they tell you something like about their pain because people aren't going to make that up thank you so much so that is so powerful and i'm really really excited to be able to share this widely um i have like in the last minute or two wild card questions are you up for it <laughs> sure okay what's one thing you're binging on netflix or oh my gosh anything um, <laughs> Well, recently started, it's not on Netflix, but um, binging, well, actually not even binging, but started watching WandaVision. WandaVision is on Disney Plus. Oh, we just got Disney Plus. We just got it. Yeah. So okay. WandaVision, so it's it's uh, Marvel superheroes. I love Marvel superheroes. I love the X-Men and all that. So if you love X-Men, you'll love WandaVision because Wanda is um, Scarlet Fire from X-Men. And it tells the story of Wanda um, or Scarlet Fire and Vision, her husband, who's, um, they're all part of the, the Marvel universe. I had no idea. That's so cool. We, we watched Soul. Have you seen Soul? Yes, I've seen Soul. My kids, my kids loved Soul. I love Soul too. It made me want to work less. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, all soul, right. Soul, soul is awesome. I mean, as a musician too. I, I mean, the oh. music is just like is awesome. And yeah. Um, so yes, a... soul, soul was great. I'm like, you mean the purpose of? Okay, we don't want to. All right, we might be ruining it. Here's do, do not listen to this if you have not watched Soul. But oh, anyway, spoiler, spoiler, <laughs> spoiler alert. alert for Soul. The purpose <laughs> of living is living. I'm like, oh my goodness, <laughs> you know, so simple but so good. Okay, my last one before I leave you for this really cold day in Toronto is what's one piece of advice 
that you've received that's helped you along the way that you want to share with the listeners or a saying or a phrase? Um, There's a, one of my favorite artists and poets is Leonard Cohen Mm. and Leonard Cohen, his poetry has a lot of meaning for me such that I um, even have um, one of his lyrics, which I'm about to share tattooed on my body. Oh, nice. Um, So there's a, he has a song or it's a song, but really it's poetry called Anthem. And I think it's, and this comes from one of his um, most famous quotes, or most famous quotes of the song, which is there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Oh, I love that quote. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, I'm going to link link the reader to that song somehow. Please do. YouTube or something like that. Because <laughs> yeah, that, that really sig- signals there's always hope, right? Like there's always concrete. There's always a piece of like flower or leaf or grass popping through the concrete. There's always a little crack, right? There's always something. There's always a little crack. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But also for, for so I that is something I absolutely resonate with. And But it's also for me the that life is imperfect and mm-hmm. that there's beauty in imperfection and that we have to remember that, that there is beauty in imperfection. And so there's a crack in everything. And that's where you see the light, where you see that beauty, where you see the leaf, um, <laughs> you know, that falls, um, you know, and saying, okay, that's where I'm at. And, and, and just, being grateful for those moments that we are alive and being imperfect is okay. That's amazing. I love that we're leaving on this super, like, I feel peaceful. No, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been so fun. And you've made me think like, I, I want to do a series with ethicists. Maybe, maybe this will be the first episode of a series. Cool. So thank you so That'd much. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world. Mm-hmm.